All right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership and Business Development Solutions. We are very grateful and thankful to host and participate with the candidates for the South Eugene County Commissioner's race. We have with us this evening both Lori Trigger and Joel Iboa. And our panelists tonight, our moderators, are Celine Swenson and Ellen, Ellen McKean, I apologize. And so let me begin laying some of the ground rules so that all those that are viewing uh, will know exactly what they are. Each candidate will have five minutes to make an opening statement. I will be managing the clock. They will have three answers to answer each question. I would encourage the candidates to remember there are many undecided voters still and to take advantage of the time that you've been given. At the one minute mark of answering your questions, I will simply hold up the three by five card with the one so I don't interrupt you. When you get to 30 seconds, I'll hold up the 30 second card. And when I get to, when you get to time, I'll hold up T index card. If you are completing your thought at when you see the time, uh, please complete that thought. We don't want to short uh, circuit anyone. If the if your the if the candidate or your opponent wants to ask a question based on your answer, they can do that, and then they'll have and then you'll have an opportunity to respond. If the moderator wants to ask an ancillary question to one of the candidates based on your response, they're going to have the opportunity to do that as well. And then when we get to the end, each candidate will have seven minutes to make a final uh, closing statement to the voters. Okay. All right, with that said, I will begin. We'll start with uh, Joel making his opening statement and then Lori uh, making hers. And then we'll, as we close, Lori will make her closing statement first and Joel will make his. Uh, with that said, uh, Joel, you have five minutes. You may begin. Mark, um, and I appreciate uh, my opponent, Lori, being here with me this afternoon as well. And thanks to Ellen and Celine for agreeing to moderate this, um, which is, it's so strange trying to do this online. Uh, when COVID first hit, I was like, oh, well maybe we'll, you know, after a few months, we'll get face to face, but um, that has not been the case. So uh, the virtual campaign continues. But hey everybody, uh, my name is Joel Iboa. I also go by Joel Iboa. I'm a candidate running for Lane County Commissioner right here in District 3, South Eugene. I was born and raised right here in Eugene, Oregon. Um, my parents uh, joined in the long American tradition of coming to this country in search of a better life for the freedom and opportunity this country has to offer. Uh, and they raised three children right here in uh, Eugene, Oregon. Myself, my sister, my brother and I all went to K through 12, um, to Buena Vista and the Monroe Middle School. And then we graduated um, in the IHS department. I then went on to be the first person in my family not only to go to college, but also to graduate um, with, a, with a degree, uh, a bachelor's degree in sociology and anthropology from the University of Oregon. Um, I've spent the last six or seven years uh, fighting um, as, a, as an advocate, as an activist, and also just as a, a homegrown kid right here from Eugene. Um, spent several years working in environmental justice, well, is the immigrant rights movement. I currently chair the Eugene Human Rights Commission I also uh, chair the Governor's Environmental Justice Task Force. I was the youngest person to be appointed and I was voted chair just one year after that. I've also been um, the president and vice president of uh, the Civil Liberties Defense Center, as well as uh, the Northwest Forest Workers Justice Project. Um, 
So in general, you know, as, as we as we get closer and closer to election day, um, I also just want to recognize the really unique moment that we're in in such a historic election cycle with uh, our little democracy um, on the line. And so um, it's a really important that people vote. Uh, it's really important that people show their voices, um, see their voices on uh, during this democratic process. Uh, looks like we're having some Is the Facebook Live working, Mark? I think I'm, Lori's I'm mentioning I'm it. I'm right now. Okay. I'm relaunching it. So um, why don't you just pause for a moment, please, Joel? Sure. Please pause okay. for a moment, and we'll restart with the um, the program because we want to make sure that this happens correctly. Okay, Facebook Live now, it's working. I apologize, everyone. Uh, this happens in this wonderful technological world that we live in. I got kicked out. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. So with that said, we're going to restart the forum out of respect to the candidates, the moderators, and those that uh, are logging on to view. So again, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO Molina Leadership and Business Development Solutions. Uh, we are hosting the South Eugene County Commissioner uh, Candidate Forum this evening for candidates Lori Trigger and Joel Iboa. And we are uh, had a little bit of technical difficulties, but we look like we're on track. Our moderators are Celine Swenson and Ellen McKeon. Each candidate will have five minutes to make an opening statement. Uh, three minutes to answer a question, answer their questions, and when they get to the end, uh, answering their questions or their statements, I'll, I'll hold up the one-minute marker. I'll hold up the thirty-second marker, and I'll hold up the time marker. The candidates, if they are speaking when they see the time marker, they are uh, encouraged to complete their their comments and their statements. 
Then each candidate will be given an opportunity to make a final closing statement for seven minutes. Uh, we will begin with jo Joel, who will make his opening statement first, and then Lori will make hers. And at the end, Lori will begin with her closing statements, and Joel will begin, uh, will end with his. We have seem to have better communication across the board now. So we'll begin this as the official uh, time for this forum. We're going to go the full 90 minutes so that the candidates get the chance to be heard. There are many undecided voters, so I want to encourage the candidates to please remember to use your time. This is your chance to be heard and to be seen by those undecided voters. Uh, Joel, you have five minutes to make your opening statement, sir. Thanks so much, Mark, and thanks, Lori, for flagging that. <laughs> uh, hey, folks, uh, this is Hoy Libo. I'm a candidate running for Lane County Commissioner in District 3, South Eugene. I also go by Joel Iboa. Uh, fun fact about me, my father's name is Joel as well. Um, so when he first came to this country, folks started calling him Joel. And people asked me, prefer Hoy or you prefer Joel? I tell people, either one's fine. Just make sure you say it right. Uh, <laughs> um, but thank you so much to Mark. Thank you to Lori and Selena and Ellen for taking time out of your busy schedules to be here. Um, wanted to tell you all a little bit about me. Uh, I was born and raised right here in Eugene. Uh, my parents came here to join the long American tradition of coming to this country in search of a better life for the freedom and opportunities this country has to offer. It's a journey that many folks have made before, um, many folks are making now, and many people will make in the future. Um, they raised three kids here in the Whitaker community. Both my sister and I and my brother all went through K through 12. Um, I was the first person I found me to go to college. I uh, graduated from the University of Oregon with a degree in sociology and anthropology um, with concentrations in crime and delinquency. Uh, and then I've spent the last six or seven years or so since I graduated college uh, fighting for my community, fighting for uh, Lane County, fighting for the state of Oregon. I first started my journey at Beyond Toxics as the environmental justice and community outreach manager. Um, actually, my first day in the job, I remember going to Senator Lee Byer's office to talk to him about uh, aerial herbicide spraying. And I accompanied some folks from Gold Coast who had been experiencing some really, really awful stuff um, being sprayed by aerial herbicides and helicopters. And then that journey has led me to today, um, after two years of Beyond Toxics, advocating for, for rural communities, for communities, uh, farm workers and forest workers in regards to chemical uh, exposure. I started working for CALSA Oregon, Oregon's Immigrant Rights Organization as the coalition manager of One Oregon. Um, our job is to track anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim bills and ballot measures. Um, I successfully uh, doubled the size of One Oregon from about 50-ish organizations to over 100. Um, and you know we've had some really tough fights in the last couple of years. Um, uh, this federal administration has been relentless in their attack on immigrants, not just on immigrants, but on, on people of color, on LGBTQ folks, on reproductive rights. I mean, the, the list just goes on and on and on and on. And so I've been uh, really proud to have been played a pivotal role these last four years in protecting the place that we all call home. Um, in 2018, we faced um, Measure 105 and Measure 106. Measure 105, an attack on Oregon's 30, then 32-year-old sanctuary law, now 34, 35. Um, and also Measure 106, which was a backdoor ban on abortion. Um, I managed a coalition for 105, and we successfully defended um, Oregon's sanctuary law, which I'm, I'm very proud of. It was a, that was a tough uh, fall campaign cycle. Um, 
But right after that, we had something beautiful happen, which was the 2019 legislative session. And we had a supermajority in the House and the Senate. And um, I was very excited to have been able to lead the coalition for uh, driver's licenses for all. Um, it was a battle that we've been trying to, to fight for over a decade. Um, and, you know, after 2014, um, when we lost it, you know, due to Measure 88, when Oregonians voted no for immigrants to be able to drive, we spent many years um, trying to figure out um, how, to, how to get it done. And after we defended Oregon sanctuary law, um, I was successfully advocated for the passage of House Bill 2015, which made Oregon the 14th state to allow people without legal status the ability to drive. Um, and so now we're, we're in a moment, you know, as we're coming up with, what is it, 13, 14 days until election day, in which the, uh, the fate of our democracy is, is, is really at stake here. Um, and so I decided to run for county commissioner to, to foster a community with affordable, healthy homes, with safe streets for everybody, regardless of how you look or where you're from. Um, and with green jobs, because it's time for us to transition from an extraction-based economy to an economy of regeneration and an economy that's going to help um, communities for generations to come. So please vote. Vote up and down the line. Vote for local races. Vote for the president. Um, election day is going to be a, a rough one. And I, I have a, a deep fear that um, we may not be able to call it um, in terms of the presidential race um, that night. So there's a lot of work to be done either way. And I, I thank you for your time. Lori, you have five minutes, ma'am. You're on mute. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you so much, Mark, um, for these opportunities you've been creating with these candidate forums. COVID has robbed us all of so much, and your efforts to help candidates connect and communicate side by side with voters is such an important part of the democratic process. So thank you. And thanks too to Ellen and Celine for your support on this project and to Joel for making time tonight. I'm Lori Trigger. I'm a candidate for Lane County Commissioner District 3. I am a firm believer in the power of ordinary people to do extraordinary things. We are in a time of unparalleled shared grief and loss, of chaos, of upheaval and uncertainty, but it is not forever. We will get through this and we will get through it together. I'm ready to help ease the challenges brought about by this pandemic, to face both overt and covert racism head on, to help rebuild communities on a new foundation, one of shared prosperity, of health and of justice. I have lived in this district for 34 years. I've raised two kids here and now I'm watching my twin grandsons grow up in this community I love and I want them to have what we did when we first moved here. The ability to afford a home even with modest wages, to find meaningful work and be able to pay the bills and keep food on the table, and to have green spaces and clean rivers to play in. My grandchildren deserve that, as do all children of their generation and beyond. When we first moved here, we were a struggling young family. My husband was in grad school and food stamps and the WIC program helped uh, make our family's uh, table full and helped us meet um, our basic needs. I understand how important it is to have these kinds of fundamental supports in place so people can thrive. With the public health crisis of COVID, more and more families will be relying on these kinds of supports to get them through in the years to come. I've been a waitress, a receptionist, I've worked retail, 
I cleaned office buildings at night when my kids were young and we couldn't afford childcare, so I worked nights and my husband worked days. I've been that frontline essential worker. So having worked these low wage hourly jobs with unpredictable schedules, I know the challenges faced by so many in our communities. I know the struggle of having, uh, as my mother used to say, too much month left at the end of the money. But uh, things did get better over time. Our family stabilized, our kids grew up. And despite not having a college degree through my relationships built in volunteering, I found ultimately a rewarding career in trusted local nonprofits, starting 20 years ago with Food for Lane County, where I worked in collaboration with anti-hunger and anti-poverty advocates across Lane County and Northwest region. And in the decades since, I've continued to work professionally and as a community volunteer, delivering critical human services and organizing with and advocating for some of our most marginalized and least resourced neighbors. I'm proud of the work I've done to help level the playing field for women and for Black, Indigenous, and people of color through initiatives as wide-ranging as food access and nutrition policy work, reining in predatory payday lenders, safeguarding reproductive rights, protecting our environment, and securing funding for bike and pedestrian infrastructure. I've been integrally involved in campaigns, including raising Oregon's minimum wage and organized in support of legislation addressing discriminatory hiring practices that create barriers to employment, especially for people with conviction histories. As an executive director, I've been responsible for hiring, scoping job positions, supervising people, budgets and fiscal oversight. In 2014, I led our local coalition to fight for and win paid sick days for every worker in Eugene, and we went on to pass that law statewide, a law that helped stave off income and job loss in the early stages of the pandemic, and one that is now helping set groundwork for national relief packages for workers across the country. I've served on the county's budget committee and the Lane County Equity and Access Advisory Board. I have an unwavering commitment to inclusivity, to values-driven leadership, and a proven track record of working collaboratively to deliver real results. For more than two decades, I've been a champion for working families, for the rights of women, for racial justice, and for people struggling to meet their basic needs. I'm a champion for dignity and fairness. I do this work by building relationships, showing up, and getting things done. And that's what I'll do as your commissioner too. I'm looking forward to tonight's conversation and to answering your questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you both very much uh, for the viewers. I'd like to remind you that we are going to go the, the full time for the sake of the candidates and for undecided voters. Uh, that being said, uh, each candidate will have three minutes to respond to the moderator. Celine, we'll begin with you. All right, um, so the, the first question uh, for me is, uh, economic instability resulting from COVID has meant that many local governments are facing the prospect of decreased revenue. Should a recession resulting from the pandemic result in the need for the county to make budget cuts, what will you strive to preserve funding for? And what do you think should be considered for reductions? Who's your first uh, person? Celine? Oh, um, let's go in the same order as the intro, so start with Joel. Thanks, Celine. Um, and would you mind dropping your question in the chat box as well? I would be happy to. Thank you so much. Right. 
COVID is already decimated uh, our community. I mean, millions of people have lost their job, and 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 there's no different here in here in Lane County and here in the state of Oregon. Um, and the way things are going with, right now, with, with how I see the cases going up, I think there's going to be a really it's going to be really tough 2021. Um, we have 33 revenue sources, 32 of which are pretty tied up. Um, and then we've got a general fund that um, we have a little bit of discretion to play with. But at the end of the day, you know, for us as a county, I think the biggest priority is to make sure that we keep in the, the over 1,500 people that, that work at Lane County employed um, so they can continue to provide the essential services that um, that a lot of people are are continuing to and are going to have an increase in, in needing. Uh, so for me, you know, my goal is to strive to preserve funding for those positions um, to make sure that we don't lose people, that we don't lose talent, that we don't lose folks that are providing the services that folks in our community needs, whether it be prenatal care or mental health services or you know, uh, permanent supportive housing or addiction services, you know, the, the myriad of things that, that we do, you know, we should really be careful um, to keep those. And it's going to be tough. I mean, it's going to be tough because we also have uh, at the state level, um, you know, the, there's going to be some anticipated um, loss of revenue because the majority of our general fund at the state level comes from people's income. And the fact of the matter is there's not a ton of income. Um, and so one of the biggest things for me is, you know, how can we work with our congressional delegation? How can we work with our state legislators? How can we work with other levels of government to increase our revenue sources, whether it be through a wealth tax, um, you know, for individuals of our community who not only have survived, um, you know, we talk, we all, we talk about COVID as being all of us in the same boat, but the fact of the matter is some of us are in a yacht. And some of us are in tiny little boats, and some of us have drowned. Um, so we need to we need to figure out a way to to not necessarily to talk about reductions, but we need to talk about how we're going to raise some money. Um, and that means you know holding certain people and corporations accountable for their lack of investment in our communities. Thank you. Um, I appreciate where Joel ended and I will pick it up there, which is um, increasing revenue is something we need to figure out how to do moving forward. We needed to figure that out before COVID. Um, it's even more of an urgent need now. We have been um, really fortunate in the last few years to have uh, some real talent in the budget department at the county and, and an administrator who is really committed to a structurally balanced budget, but we've known since the loss of secure rural schools money that we were heading over a, um, an insufficient revenue cliff and COVID's really only accelerating that. So what I'd like to do rather, what, what the approach I like to take is rather than just look at sort of bottom line numbers and services and say, where are you gonna cut? Is we have to recognize a 360 degree look at not only what we're getting for our investments, um, but also what the cost is of not taking action or not doing a certain thing. So an example I will give you, um, when we were fighting for paid sick time, there were several folks in the community who said, as business owners, we can't afford that. Well, in fact, uh, that ignores the cost of not providing 
workers with paid sick time. There's a hidden cost. It's just born on the backs of the workers predominantly. And it's also buried in things like um, decreased productivity, training new folks um, to get them up to speed when you have high turnover. So I would be looking really carefully, really thoughtfully at the services we're delivering and what we're getting for the investment and what it's going to cost us not to meet certain basic needs. We're already seeing that result. I'm sure later tonight we're going to get to talking about meeting the needs of unhoused folks in our mental health and addiction crises. Um, but those are two prime examples where one of the reasons we're spending so much money is because we're waiting until way further downstream in the problem, um, which is a much more expensive way to address those issues. One thing I will say as someone with over 20 years experience managing uh, programs and directing organizations in nonprofits, what we can learn from the nonprofit community is what are nonprofits good at? Mission driven, values focused, and delivering incredible results on really constrained resources. So what is it we can learn from that culture, that model of leadership and of delivering services as a local government? I think there's a, there's a lot we could be doing sort of culturally as a government and how we operate um, and taking some of those best practices of how you, how you do that. Um, again, how you stay, basically start with the end in mind. What's, why are we doing this? What does it look like when we've succeeded? And then let's work our way back there and make the investments we need to get there. If we start the conversations with money, the conversations end right there. And we never get into digging into the deep work of why it matters, who we're trying to serve, and what the overall benefit to our community is for that commitment. Thank you. Ellen, your question to, and identify the candidate, please. There we go. Um, so my question um, to each candidate is, what issue do you either strongly support or strongly oppose um, is not on the radar of the current county commissioners? Um, and if they don't agree with your position, how would you work with them? Um, and I'll pose this to Joel to start. Could you put the question in the chat, please? Thank you. And Mark, are we, are we going to be going back and forth or do you want to do two and two? And we're going to go back and forth. Okay. Do you want to start this time, Lori? I'll start the time when you get when you see the question. Sure. Oh, I believe Ellen called on you to start, Joel. I just popped it in the chat, Joel. Sure. Great. Sounds good. Okay. I wouldn't say necessarily on the radar. I would say I think it's more of a question about how, how much are they worrying about it at night? I think one thing that ties all leaders together is that they don't get much sleep. Um, <laughs> I, I uh, spend a lot of my time at night thinking about things. Does, this mind doesn't shut off. And um, so when I talk to elected officials, one thing I often hear from them is that, you know, they're also thinking about things a lot. They're also worrying about stuff. And so one of the things that's really, really concerning to me right now is uh, the reality of hate and bias incidences in our in our community. As a matter of fact, today, uh, the city of Eugene released their hate and bias report from 2019, um, when I had a chance as chair of the Human Rights Commission to go and chat a little bit about it. Um, but I've also been having conversations in my role on the Anti-Hate Network. It's a consortium of organizations across the Western states that are combating back against um, anti-democratic and white supremacist organizations. And so 
one of the things that I've seen is that we have done some signaling. The city of Eugene has passed a resolution condemning white nationalism and white supremacy. The county did one as well, uh, following suit. Um, but however, there, there isn't much more than that. And there is one position um, that's kind of dealing with these issues, but it's not really a department. And so for me, I think one of the critical things that I would like to do is to make a, a formal department of equity and inclusion um, that will deal with some of this larger hate and bias activity, um, this anti-democratic white nationalist um, reality that we're living in, in which people in our community are stockpiling guns. They are um, threatening to, to hit our streets. Um, every day I have conversations with community members saying that they don't feel safe leaving their home. Um, I myself have been uh, the target of, of, of um, white nationalist behavior, you know. So for me, that, like I said, I don't think it's not on their radar. It's just something that they, they haven't invested in as much as I, I would like to see. And so it's something that I definitely, as county commissioner, would um, really dig my shoulder into. Thank you. Um, you know, I've been running on a platform of public health equity um, for the better part of two years now. And really, the, the whole reason the county commission seat came on my radar was um, I ran a public health nonprofit for five years, um, from 2007 to 2012, working on child obesity prevention. And in doing that work, I came to really understand the opportunities and the role of public health and public health organizations and what public health best practice looks like. It was also at that time in 2007 that I learned that our county commissioners are our public health authority. They actually have a, a distinct um, in the charter authority as the public health uh, board, the board of health, and they gavel in separately to take action as the board of health. They've done this on a number of important issues, for instance, and most notably around tobacco prevention work um, in our community. And what that looks like is creating systems and environments that support people in making decisions and living whole and healthy lives and bring us better health outcomes. Public health equity focuses on underserved communities, on structurally marginalized communities, and it addresses the disparate health outcomes and helps to close the gaps in those health outcomes. So I would say it's not so much an issue, but an approach, a framework, a lens to look at everything through, a public health lens. Our board of commissioners are our health authority, and we do not have anyone on that board committed to, experienced in, and understanding of what that role really is and what it could be doing to improve lives of people in our communities. So what I would bring is that insistence on embracing and flexing our public health muscle uh, as, a, as a board. That can be done um, every single issue facing our community when looked at through a public health lens, we see very different solutions. I would be a strong proponent and advocate of naming racism as a public health crisis. When we do that, we start uh, understanding what our obligations and opportunities are from a policy practice and culture perspective to start addressing um, these critical issues around um, disparate health outcomes, around violence and threats faced by certain members of our community and more. I'm particularly interested in and excited to embrace the role of a health authority when it comes to health outcomes for mamas and children. 
I think the health of mothers and children in our community are absolutely the canaries in the coal mine. If mama isn't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? If we don't have healthy babies being born in our community, that signals a very fundamental problem in how we're operating as a local government. So I would answer your question by saying, a public health lens, an embracing of that public health lens, and the way I would bring the other commissioners on in doing that is saying that it's in their charter to do so, and that every single goal they have can still be met, um, just apply a public health lens to it to get the work done. Thank you. As we move forward, <clears throat> asking questions, let's make sure moderators that we're switching back and forth uh, to each candidate uh, to start the answers. Okay, Celine, your question, please. Got it. And I'm going to go ahead and put this in the chat as well. Um, in July, Lane County administered $2,000 in grants to local businesses awarded by the state, which was exhausted within half an hour of the application opening. How would you ensure that minority-owned businesses, Spanish-speaking businesses, and women-owned businesses are given a fair opportunity in the application process? Yeah, so is it my turn to start? Yes, Lori. Yeah, yeah, great. Thank Sorry. you. Um, um, so um, I worked for a year as the launch manager of the Sprout Regional Food Hub, which was uh, under the auspices of NEDCO, of the Neighborhood Economic Development Corporation in Springfield. And the department, the local works department that I managed, um, worked to, on revitalization of downtown and running that Sprout Regional Food Hub, which focused on helping non-traditional entrepreneurs who wanted to get launch a business in the food industry in particular, um, with business coaching, with access to this uh, rental, uh, rental, fully equipped rental kitchen and so on. So I developed some um, really strong relationships in the small business community with the Main Street Alliance. And so I would really look to those partners and ask them what is the best pathway to reach the folks that you're working with and serving. Um, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't rule out the idea of opening a grant process on a rolling deadline and having uh, that first pass be only open to um, certain um, priority applicants, um, which, as, which would be, as you mentioned, Celine, you know, um, people of color, women-owned businesses, and so on. Um, I think there could also be ways of looking at different um, interest rates for, for loans for non-traditional entrepreneurs and so on. But I think like so many um, issues in the community, I would go to the community most affected and, and ask, or the partners that are working with them, what would be the best way? What's the, what's the quickest glide path for you to access this service and this resource? And is this really um, the resource that you most need? Um, so um, I, I, if that answers your question, I'm happy to, to stop there. Celine, does that answer your question? Uh, yes, I believe it does. Okay, Joel. Uh, thanks for your question, Celine. Uh, this has been a this has been a, a big issue, right? Like we've had individuals that own local small businesses being left in the hanging in the balance, right? Right now. And while massive corporations like Amazon are raking in billions of dollars um, during this crisis. And so what we've seen is we've seen folks that are these mega businesses like get all this cash and then people who, you know, own a mom and pop shop or folks like Thomas Petizar, um, who's owner of the Bar Night and Farmers Union Coffee, um, you know, him as him and I have had conversations these last few months, you know, he shared with me that he needs to sell the barn right downtown. Um, and he can't afford to, you know, to keep it. Uh, he, he's going to keep his coffee business. Um, but really, you know, he's, he's getting ready to sort of make a massive shift. 
Um, and what, what I'm afraid of is there's going to be sort of this monopolies of, of a few American industries sitting at the top while um, these smaller businesses, right, and uh, are suffering. And, and that's, that's with your average business owner. Now, when you talk about um, MWBs, minority and women-owned businesses, then, we, then things get even scarier. Um, and the fact of the matter is, even before COVID, support for minority and women-owned businesses was, at best, so-so. Um, fortunately for us, we do have community-based organizations that, that um, know how to do this work. And so I think right now what we need to do is um, be very intentional about how we disperse money like this, right? Um, if we have $200,000, you know, is there a way for us to make an assessment of how many businesses are in the county? What percentage of those businesses are owned by minorities, by women, by people with disabilities, you know, by folks who traditionally aren't able to access um, you know, the opportunities that it takes to, to create a business and how can we make sure that we're getting to them? Um, for me, that, that includes a few things. One, you know, making sure we're really plugged in with community-based organizations, groups like Centro Latino Americano, um, groups like, uh, the NAACP, you know, uh, groups like other groups like, uh, uh GLAD and Latino Professionals Connect. Um, you know, there's, there's a number of community-based organizations that uh, have contacts with folks. The one business in particular that does a great job of this is Huerto La Familia. They actually have a, a business incubation program. And fun fact, um, my family and I had a plot at a Huerto, Huerto uh, plot near Skinner's Butte. Um, but they have a, a business incubation program. So I think for me, what it would look like is, the county talking to groups like Puerto La Familia first and being like, hey, do you have any businesses or no folks that um, that need that, that need to that need some support? And how can we make sure that that they're able to access this? Because how like the fact that it went away in half an hour is just it's just unacceptable. Very good, thank you, Ellen. Your question, please. Yeah, so um, Lane County has recently been added to the state's COVID-19 watch list uh, following a surge in cases in and around University of Oregon's campus area. Um, so what do you see as the role of the county in mitigating and slowing the spread? And I'll go ahead and pop this in the chat. And I believe, um, Joel, this would be go, this would go to you first. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Um, I'm really glad you brought up the University of Oregon. Um, and I'm really glad I just brought up the fact that we're on, we're on this watch list. I saw she saw it on an Instagram post. I follow uh, Governor Brown on, on, on Instagram and saw that we had been added to, to the watch list. And, you know, it's, it's something that really scares me because, um, you know, I myself was a, was a duck, you know, it's the first time I'm ready to go and graduated. Um, and actually, my, my little brother is a duck. So my little brother, Abraham, just started his first year at the University of Oregon. Um, poor guy doesn't get to have a traditional freshman year experience. Um, he'd be at football games right now and, you know, trying to do his best to study and, and, and having that, that great freshman experience. But unfortunately, that's not the case. And um, the University of Oregon has also invited a lot of folks to come and stay um, in the dorms. That, that, to me, was, was, a, was a big uh, red light. You know, we shouldn't, um, and, and unfortunately, as I've driven, driven through District 3 and near campus, I've seen parties happen. And so 
I think it, it's time, you know, as much as we want to make sure to give um, the University of Oregon um, and its students the, the liberty to be who they are, which is young people who want to party and they want to be together. And, you know, it's been many, many months. It's important that we mitigate and slow down, um, slow down this, the, the spread of COVID. Um, and so we need to, to implement some, some stronger restrictions. We also need to make sure that we're in close communication with the University of Oregon, with the other public institutions across the state, and also with the Oregon Health Authority and Lane County Public Health. I know that the U of O has got a great uh, contract trace system. Um, they, they are doing you know, contact tracing. They are working with Lane County Public Health. Um, but the fact of the matter is students are coming together. And, um, you know, whether Lori or myself win, we would be responsible for the University of Oregon that lies squarely in our district. Um, and so, you know, for me, one of the first things I would do is, you know, sit down and have a conversation with the Google president, have a conversation with the head of, of, um, of housing, you know, because a lot of folks in, in close contact with one another um, and, and really see, you know, how, how much of these cases that are going up are because the U of O would like to continue to keep some of its revenue. Because the fact of the matter is, is that there, there's a ton of revenue being lost. And so my concern is that they're, that they're making decisions, yes, with the health of students in mind, but also with the health of their, of, of, you know, their fiduciary responsibilities as an institution. Um, and right now we're in, a, we're in a position in which we need to put the, the health and safety of students first. Um, and that's a, that's a really tough task. Thank you. Laurie? Yeah, I don't know if there's more COVID questions later. We could do a 90-minute forum just on COVID, right? But this one is specifically about the U of O. And so what I want to say about that is this is, this is a perfect example of a, what I think has so far been a real missed opportunity from the commissioners of embracing their role as the public health authority. We have public health uh, professionals working for the county who are bringing regular updates and reports to the commissioners. Um, and I, I would really elevate uh, their expertise in informing policy decisions as, as a commission. And this is the COVID is a perfect example. Um, in terms of the U of O specifically, you know, the vast majority of student cases are students living off campus. So actually what we know is that for students living in the dorms, the communication um, channels are open. The information is being disseminated and by and large is being followed. It's a more controlled environment. It's the off-campus students that are seeing the by far the higher infection rates. And I think one of the reasons we have so many students who came back to town, even though many classes and now all classes were distance learning, is actually not the U of O at all. It's um, apartment leasing companies that required students to sign one-year leases long before the U of O was ready to make its decision about whether to open campus or not. So we had students who could not break a lease and could not afford to pay a year of rent on an apartment they weren't going to live in, even if it was going to be easier and certainly safer for them to distance learn from wherever they were calling home before they, they came here. So we have to look at these issues holistically. We have to understand what all the inputs are and we have to um, reach across sectors. And this is a real problem 
um, I personally had a phenomenal campaign intern who went uh, to Sacramento to be with her family, who was in this very situation. She, she didn't want to come back to Eugene. She knew it was safer for her to stay home with her family where she had been quarantining. But she and two friends, right? That's the other thing. Most of these students living off campus don't live alone. They live uh, groups of students in a small apartment. Um, and she was in this very situation where she and her friends were faced with this impossible decision, a timing mismatch between having to sign a one-year lease on an apartment they didn't know if they were going to um, need to live in or, or be distance learning. So this is a much bigger problem um, than just the U of O. Um, this is a problem of a community that is not holistically approaching this pandemic and uh, frankly a little bit has its head in the sand about how tough we're going to have to be if we want to protect everyone in our community against this highly contagious um, illness. Uh, thank you. Uh, Joel's requested to respond to Lori. He'll have two minutes and then Lori, you'll have two minutes to respond to Joel. Joel, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly add something I forgot to mention, which is also the, the fact that we have another institution. We have the Lane Community College. Um, and so that's another big, big, big amount of folks that are, that are in our community that are trying to, to get their education. You know, most of them are doing distance learning. Um, and I'll, of course, you know, they're also added into this mix. Um, and the thing about students is, right, like I remember from my college days is that regardless of whether you live in a dorm or you live off campus, like you are in class with other people. And so when I talk to my brother and other students, I actually am the advisor of a group on campus called the University of Oregon Mecha. They're a Latinx political advocacy group. Um, and I've been speaking with their leadership, you know, because I've been I'm one of their advisors for many years. Um, I was myself a, a machista and it was my first political home. And when I talked to them, you know, over the summertime, a lot of them were home. Uh, and then uh, some of them had to come back. Uh, but what they're saying, too, is also just the pressure, right? There's a ton of pressure for them to, to get together, even though they're having distance learning and some of them do have to go to class. They have labs. There's also this tremendous pressure to be together. We're, we're innately, um, as humans, social beings, and it's 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 really difficult to try and get students to you know, especially after seven eight months being in quarantine, to say we need you to do this a little bit longer. So, uh, you know, it's it's important for for the UVO as an institution, for LCC as an institution, for LCC as an institution to have a shared message of we know this is hard. We know this really sucks, but you you need to stay safe. And with winter coming and flu season coming, I, I am very very concerned of this for the safety of of, of people who are UVO students and LCC students. So thank you. Thank you. You're welcome, Laura. You have two minutes to add. Oh, um, I I don't think I have. I mean, <laughs> I don't need to add anything. I think. Um, Again, as I said, unless there's not going to be any other COVID conversation, then I can, <laughs> I can add. No, that's that's okay. We just want to make sure that each candidate has an equal opportunity. So I believe, Celine, your question, please. Yes, and I am putting that in the chat right now. Uh, how can Lane County provide effective oversight to CCOs to ensure that money allocated to CCOs is actually used to provide care for low-income county residents on OHP? Um, and I think we would start with Lori. Yeah. I've lost track too, so. Yeah, yeah. 
we'll just, I'll dive in. Let me just hop on that again. Um, so I think, you know, there's been um, an important shift recently in moving from um, the Trillium to Pacific Source and the sort of hybrid model for a while. So I think we're in a period of, I'm just reading the question too to make sure I'm really answering it. Ensure the money. Oh, um, yeah, to make sure um, not only that the, obviously the money is going to care for the low income folks that are on OHP. I've been on Oregon Health Plan um, and uh, my kids um, have been on the CHIP program. Um, and it's, I wish everybody, honestly, everybody deserves to have um, the insurance, the coverage um, that folks that get to, that are on that program get to have. And I think um, it's been a very, um, I'll say messy process um, for the board and the CCO, the development of the CCOs, the awarding of the initial contract, um, then the revisiting of whether to have two CCOs or just one. I think there are great efficiencies. It's really streamlined, which ultimately means more money for delivering care, which is what the point is when we just have the one. Um, and I think this is just one more example of um, habits of how we've always done things sometimes uh, and people having really strong feelings and holding on to what they're used to, um, how business has been conducted, sometimes getting in the way of the ultimate purpose of what that program and what those dollars are for. And so going back to what I mentioned before about what I've learned in all my time in nonprofits is when you're mission driven, when you're really clear on what the why is, why are we doing this? It makes it a little easier to get some of those feelings and habits out of the way. So I think it's, um, you know, the, the answer to how to provide the oversight is um, with rigor and, um, and with insistence on focusing on the outcomes and on the service delivery first. And, um, you know, I, I have a saying I, I've used over the years, which is to be rigorous on ideas, but gentle on people. Um, there are a lot of people involved um, with the creation of the CCOs and then with the managing of them and with the oversight that have put a lot of, of time into them and have really strong feelings and attachment to how things should go. And so we need to be re recognize that and be gentle on um, people's personal investment. But ultimately, we have to be rigorous on the idea of what is this service and what is this investment supposed to be delivering for us. And so I think it would just, again, go back to that good public health model. It's data-driven. It's focused on uh, population-based health. And, um, and that's, I think, ultimately the best way forward is just keep having the difficult conversations and stay focused on the why, on, on what is the purpose of this program and who we're serving. Very good. Thank you. Just a moment before you answer, Joel. For the sake of the viewers who may not know what CCO means, Celine, could you give a, explain that to them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, CCOs are the coordinated care organizations. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Joel, you have three minutes. Thanks. So, you know, coordinated care organizations provide a really essential service here in our community. Um, a lot of folks need pre prevention and also they need help managing chronic conditions. Um, and what the role of the CCOs in the past has been is, is trying to reduce unnecessary emergency room visits, right? To give people the support they need to be healthy. Um, and it's super important that we continue to keep that, especially with the Affordable Care Act being challenged at the, the federal level. Um, we need to make sure to provide our most vulnerable community members um, accessible uh, healthcare, especially, you know, in the current times we're in with COVID. Like right now, people can't afford to be getting sick um, and they need to be able to get the healthcare they need. 
regardless of who they are. Um, it's my deep belief that healthcare is a human right, um, that people should not be facing financial destitution because they're getting essential medical care. And unfortunately, before COVID, this was the case. Like, like people went bankrupt trying to get healthcare. Um, I myself have had family members that have not been able to get healthcare because of their uh, migration status. Um, so back in 17, I was uh, lobbying um, in my role at CALSA for uh, Cover All Kids, which extended you know, healthcare coverage to people under the age of 19 who didn't have legal status. And that's just a, a one step in the right direction towards living in a, in a, in a, in a world in which everyone has access to healthcare. Um, but the fact of the matter is that there's still people left out, right? Like CCOs are providing care for low-income county residents on OHP, but there are potentially over 16,000 people. Um, and these people I'm talking about are people who live in our county without legal status. There's approximately 8,000, a little over 8,000 immigrants, Latinx immigrants who don't have healthcare coverage. They don't have OHP. There are approximately over 8,000 um, API immigrants that don't have legal status. So we're talking over 16,000 people that don't have access to, or don't even have access to the Oregon Health Plan. Um, so, so my concern isn't isn't just for low-income county residents, you know, who are on Oregon Health Plan. My concern extends deeper to to the people who currently are having to go to the emergency room if something really, really goes wrong. Um, we need to continue to focus on preventive care. We can save billions of dollars in, in medical expenses in the future um, while also creating a, hail, a healthier and safer society for everyone. Um, and so that, yes, that means that the counties provide oversight for CCOs to ensure that money is allocated, but also how are we ensuring that those 16,000 people I just mentioned, not to mention there are the over 9,000 uh, people who are uh, in our county who are homeless, how are we making sure that they're being um, taken care of? Uh, that, that's, that's a serious question we have to we have a responsibility to answer very good for the sake of the viewers excuse me um, what is API oh Asian Pacific under so, yes uh, yeah. moving forward either to the moderators or the candidates if you use an acronym I'll let you respond Lori um, make sure the viewers probably will not know what that means so let's keep thank you going. Mark let's appreciate it let's, okay Lori you have two minutes yeah, I just wanted to add on a little more, as you said, because people watching, you know, I mean, a coordinated, the coordinated care organizations, the concept behind it was a great one, which was to create a centralized medical home for folks on the Oregon Health Plan and um, have their providers be able to access their records and, and um, provide sort of wraparound care. So rather than a person having to um, have a different medical home for managing their chronic illness, doing their preventive annual exams, um, maybe getting uh, addiction treatment services if they needed or dental care. The idea was to create a coordinated system where providers, uh, where one, a person can have a medical home and providers can exchange information and be aware of all the issues that that person is experiencing. Because for instance, someone who's on a medication to manage a chronic illness, that medication might be interacting with something that another provider is, is uh, giving to them for something. And if they can't coordinate on that care, they don't know that. Um, so it's, that is, it's, a, it's a brilliant concept, um, but there's still a few bugs in the system to be worked out because it's still fairly, a fairly new um, system in terms of healthcare delivery. It's also important to note that Lane County is the primary medical home for about 30,000 people through the county clinics. Um, 
And then finally, uh, Joel brought up a really important point, which is there are many, many people in our communities who are not insured because of their legal status. And this is a perfect example of what I brought up earlier about when you don't address a problem early on and with a prevention model, you create much greater, not only expenses later, but really more suffering. Um, so there are far too many people with long-term chronic illness where if we had been able to address the conditions in which they live, early on, they would have avoided having the condition in the first place or have it be much better managed and way less impactful on their lives. And that shouldn't have anything to do with what kind of paperwork a person can produce when they get to the doctor's office. Very good. Thank you. Joel, did you want a chance to add to any of that? Oh, thank you. Very good. Celine, you have an ancillary question you wanted to ask? Yeah, I wanted to ask a quick follow-up. So both candidates have brought up the, the barriers that folks can face to being able to access adequate care based on their documentation status. Um, and to me, that kind of brings up a question. Is there anything that you see that the county could do to, to help with that um, or to make care more accessible to, to folks who you know, experience those barriers? Um, I think we'd probably start with Joel because he brought it up first, but I think Lori should yeah. also no, definitely. I mean, and it's something we've done in the past. Like, as a matter of fact, one of the first jobs my mom ever had um, when I was growing up was being a nurse's assistant for um, White Bird Clinic. You know, college, uh, my mom worked for Central Latino Americano for 17 years. Um, and I, I grew up, you know, sort of going to Central Latino and, and watching the different work that she did. She worked as a receptionist. She worked as a, as a, as a nurse's assistant. She did uh, alcohol and drug treatment programs. And all the while, you know, they had strong, strong relationships with community-based organizations and health clinics like Whitebird. Um, they're, they're already a model. They're already serving a ton of our, of our immigrant communities. And so one of, one of the thing that I'm thinking about is like, if it's not, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And if, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. So how can we take the existing structures that we have, like the Whitebird Clinic, and make sure that we're expanding on those, right? Whitebird does see people without a legal status, and how can a county, you know, the county also provides a ton of treatment for folks without legal status. I, I've had aunts, um, you know, my own mother, you know, went to Lane County Public Health when she was pregnant with me um, and accessed their services, and they never, they never asked her, you know, what, what's your legal status? Um, I think what we're talking about here is a much larger picture thing, which is like at the federal level and the state level, there's still a lot of restrictions to being able to access healthcare. So the role of us as county, as, I guess, county commissioners, elected officials, is to say, hey, we're trying the best we can to take care of our community. What are you doing to make sure um, that we can continue to do so and that we can expand on that? Um, and so that means that we need to start having serious conversations with our state delegation and our congressional delegation saying that we need to take care of our people and we need you to help us. Very good, thank you. Lori, two minutes. Sure, I would just add to that briefly that um, I think particularly around maternal and child health, we do, the county does a great job of being accessible to folks. Um, and again, I'll just go back to maternal and child health is where it begins, right? Um, healthy mamas uh, tend to birth healthy babies and are more likely to. And um, so it's so important, like the county is closing the prenatal clinic soon. And um, I have mixed feelings about it, but, it, but it's, it's ultimately it's okay as long as those services are dispersed out to community organizations and private clinics that don't simply have materials translated into um, other languages than English, but actually have um, staffing 
and set up their clinics in a way that is welcoming and um, and clearly for the folks that are that are coming there for for services. So this is a great example of um, policy matters, but so does practice, so does culture. And there's so many issues we could talk about where uh, really everything requires a, a degree of culture change as well as policy change. And sometimes one thing gets way out in front of the other. Sometimes they trade off back and forth. Um, but going back again, as I mentioned, like tobacco prevention work, right? That's culture change. Um, I mean, doctors used to smoke while sitting in the in the exam room with their patients. That was a culture that we had around smoking. Um, and that culture has changed, right? Um, and so have the policies around where you can smoke and what age you can smoke and what tobacco taxes, um, what, what those costs. So I think this is another really important example um, where commissioners as leaders can provide some of that culture change by how we talk about who needs care and why and how it benefits everyone in the community when, um, when we have greater health outcomes for all. Very good. Thank you. Ellen, your question? Yeah. Um, so a recent study found that um, the percentage of tenants reporting the ability to pay their rent in full at the start of the month um, has dropped from about 90% in March to 67% in July. Um, many renters are continuing to face unemployment and other financial strains due to the pandemic. Um, what is the county's role in addressing housing insecurity? And I will pop this in the chat. Thanks, Alan. Yeah. I think I, I think I'm starting first. I think it's you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we keep losing track. Um, I just I can't even put into words like how devastating um, the threat of of not being able to to stay in your home is, and we've seen already. Even though there is a moratorium on rent evictions, um, at the state level, it's it's due to to expire at the end of the year. And so, you know, as, and I, and I thought up to this point that we would have, that we would have a, a path forward into to coming back to some semblance of normalcy. And the fact of the matter is, it's just, it's just not happening. If anything, we're going back. Um, and as people, as you mentioned, right, continue to experience an employment financial strain, the role of our county to addressing housing security is to do a few things. You know, one is to, um, really try to increase renter protections. You know, the, the state of Oregon um, has done some some things. Our governor has done some incredible things to to try and prevent people from being evicted. But we also we needed other things beforehand. We needed caps on on on, on increases on rent. You know, we need to promote the development of more quality affordable housing. We also need to take a, a deep look into our housing stock. Like we have a ton of of housing of housing units that are dilapidated. And, and just not livable places. Um, you know, I think about my, my aunt, I have a, an aunt who um, works at a sawmill and is, um, you know, was a single mother for many, many years. Um, and I've seen over the years how much she struggled. I was just actually on the phone with her the other day and she mentioned to me that her rent from, went from $1,060 a month to $1,012, almost $1,200, um, even though they promised you know, them that they wouldn't be having uh, an increase in rent. Um, and that's really tough for her to pay. You know, her oldest son, who was a DACA recipient, my cousin, he's at Willamette University, he's moving back, you know, from, from Willamette University to try to get a job to try and um, help his mom pay for rent. Um, and that's just one story of, of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of stories 
across our community, across our state. Um, and, and we have a responsibility to, to try and fix this issue. And again, like working hand in hand with our congressional delegation, with our city councilors, um, with our you know, working coalition, with our state legislature, we cannot let people lose their home. Even before COVID started, a lot of folks were uh, one paycheck away from being on the streets. And, we've, and as we know, we've got thousands of people more who are on the streets currently. Um, everyone deserves to, a place to call home, a safe place to rest their head at night and um, you know, wake up every day and, and try to, to make a better life for themselves. Thank you, Lori. Great. So there's sort of two two questions, um, and so I'll, I'll start with the bigger, and then come down to the COVID specific and the folks, Ellen, as you started your question about who can who can make rent. I mean, the question of what can commissioners do around housing is um, all sorts of things. The county commissioners are half of the board of the county. We are the housing authority for uh, the agency Homes for Good, formerly, formerly the um, Housing and Community Services, or HACSA, now called Homes for Good. So the county commissioners can do a, a lot um, as in their role as that board um, of Homes for Good. The, the, through that, though, that is one very specific path to, um, to becoming housed for a very particular population um, in, of income-constrained folks in our community. Although the agency also does help with um, rental assistance, um, helps develop housing, manage housing, and also contract out to other uh, property managers to manage existing, existing housing. But housing, um, we're, we're under inventoried. We've been under building by about a thousand units a year for the better part of 10 years now. We simply don't have the inventory um, that we need in this community at all income levels, levels for all stages of life. And uh, wages have not kept up with inflation. Um, housing costs have increased more than two and a half times faster than wages in Lane County. So commissioners have a lot to do with what kinds of businesses we're attracting to the community. And I was so excited about the community benefits agreement that was recently uh, just um, within the last few days adopted by the commissioners. That's going to go a long way toward helping close that gap between the cost of housing and um, the income that everyday workers in our community um, are earning. So there's a, there's a lot not only that the commissioners can do, but frankly that they're obligated to do on this issue. The thing about how many people are um, becoming uh, more and more housing insecure as a result of the pandemic, well, that's just, I mean, the domino effect of that, right? The county relies on property tax dollars, even though the county receives only 11 cents on the dollar for every property tax dollar collected. The rest is um, the county collects on behalf of other districts, school districts and cities and so on. But those property tax dollars are what fund our programs. And so if a renter can't pay their rent, then the property owner owner may not be able to pay their mortgage on that property or their property taxes. It's, it's really, um, again, it's something we're gonna have to look at holistically and come up with um, solutions that address, um, you know, it's just a giant game of whack-a-mole otherwise. Um, so in short, what can the commissioners do? Um, they, they're obligated to do everything they absolutely can and to work um, cross-jurisdictionally and urgently. A housing action plan for the first time ever is on path to become adopted by the commissioners. That was presented by um, Better Housing Together, which is a consortium of uh, I don't know, at least 50 organizations in the community. And I love its holistic approach that recognizes and looks at transportation, school location, basic services like grocery and pharmacy to housing, and how we develop really robust 
um, nodal development within our within the cities within the county and then also how we develop land on the outskirts looking at things like community land trusts and so on so lots about housing that commissioners could be could be working on uh, thank you Ellen you have a follow-up question for the candidates yeah um, I appreciate your responses about you know very holistic long-term um, responses and actions we could be taking. I'd like to ask a little more of a narrow question. You know, the county opened a new round of rent assistance on Friday. I checked today. It's already been closed because of the number of applications that they have received. Um, so I guess my question is, you know, absent more federal funding, are there things that we can do now to kind of relieve those symptoms? I guess that's huge. Yeah, I can go first. Um, yeah, I mean, rent assistance is great, right? And, and I think, right, like what happened when COVID first hit was that we had a, a really great, um, not really great, it's like it wasn't great at all. We had one check. <laughs> we had one check. It was a disaster, right? We're in this position because our federal government failed us, failed us miserably. Um, and unlike other countries, you know, we could have spent three months, six months in quarantine and hopefully getting to some semblance of normalcy. But the fact of the matter is, that, that this federal administration, Trump's administration, not only uh, denied at first the, the presence and realness of COVID, but also didn't do everything they could to make sure that we were okay. And so what's happened is it's fallen on the state to take the little money that they received from the feds and then try to distribute it, distribute it to, uh, to counties and cities. And so for, for me, in terms of, of rent assistance, is that, you know, we've got some emergency funds um, at the state legislature, and I know they've given out a ton of it already. Um, but for us as, as a county, we need to be out there hustling as much cash as we can to, to try and open this stuff up some more, and also working really closely with our city council um, to, make it, to making sure that we're not having redundancies. So... Um, if we have a program, if the city of Eugene is doing a rent assistance and the county is also doing one and this, and Springfield's doing one and they're all have admin costs. Like there's a way to streamline those programs, uh, and make it so that, um, you know, we, we need, so, so we can work closely together. You know, I, I've got a really strong uh, background as a coalition builder and I'm always thinking about like, how, how can we streamline efforts? How can we make sure that we're not causing redundancies? And so, and also, back again to my point about the, the, the minority women-owned businesses, if we're having rent assistance programs, who is this rent assistance for? Um, and is everyone in our community that's vulnerable um, able to access it? Two minutes, Lori. Yeah, I think, you know, rent assistance programs are important, but they're temporary, right? You give someone assistance, you give them relief for a month or two, but this pandemic, um, as was just pointed out, yes, the federal administration is failing us, Local governments can inoculate against bad federal policy or amplify good federal policy. And we're just being uh, inundated with bad federal policy right now and, and lack of help and relief. And, um, you know, the commission, the role of the commission of the board of commissioners in sort of the structure in terms of funding, right, is the state receives federal dollars, the state, um, the state receives the federal dollars, then the state gives it to the counties to either spend on their own programs and services or to grant out or to contract out. Um, and again, they're just, if there isn't enough money, there isn't enough money. Um, there also are some real problems looming because of people displaced by the wildfires. Um, really excited about a project that is actively in the works called Project Turnkey that takes distressed hotels and motels um, and converts them 
into multi-unit um, housing. And so this is important too, because when folks are displaced, whether because they lost income um, because of a pandemic and then were evicted, whether because of wildfires for any number of reasons, whether it's a, a woman escaping domestic violence, um, the more people that we're moving around, the more we can find homes for specific niche populations or needs, the more that frees up in the already limited um, inventory and resource of, of, other, of other homes that we have. So again, I think this holistic approach is really important. Rental assistance um, helps ameliorate the immediate crisis, but that crisis might be right back again in 60 days when somebody gets 60 days of rent relief, if nothing else in their, uh, about their circumstances and their income has changed. Thank you, Celine, your question. Yes. Um, so my next question is, what do you think went well in the response to recent wildfires? What do you see as opportunities for growth in terms of the county's disaster response capabilities? And I think we will start with Lori. Yeah. Um, so what went well in their response? Well, I, I know from conversations I've had with folks, there was a lot learned um, and a lot of really important relationships and alliances formed. I was really, like many people, just focused on the immediate need of getting folks help. Um, Mark and I actually ran into each other a few times out at Silky Field, um, providing relief in the immediate for evacuees. Um, and I think the county, one of the things um, that the county did both a good and a less good job with COVID and the wildfires was communicating out to the community what was going on. In, well, that was the good. The less good was that communication wasn't um, always accessible to people who needed it. It wasn't in multiple languages, including sign language. Um, I heard from se I have several connections in the deaf community, um, folks who um, we weren't interpreting the, um, the updates the county public health was giving and so on. So some real gaps in um, with whom we were communicating. So really good messaging, but some real gaps in um, how some people were able to access, access those messages. Um, something I think that was learned that I heard from several folks, particularly regarding our unhoused neighbors and the crisis of the hazardous air that went on for as long as it did. Um, uh, you know, good idea, poorly executed about providing some temporary shelter, but when it's only for 12 hours, a person doesn't wanna have to decamp haul all their stuff somewhere to get out of the air for 12 hours and then maybe lose um, their campsite. And so the um, immediate, the um, securing and then and then distribution of the uh, N95 masks of like 450 masks. So if that had just happened right away, um, that would have been would have been a great improvement um, so that folks who, who were out, outdoors were um, at least fitted with that protective gear. Um, in terms of the response, you know, I don't know about all y'all, I was signed up for all the alerts and it was both stressful as anything to have my phone scream at me, but also like, okay, that's what's happening. Okay, that's what's happening. I needed that. That, uh, that alert system was really helpful. Um, it's just tough, right? Our, our reptilian brain tells us when we smell smoke that we're in danger and that there's fire. And so that disconnect the, the rational mind saying, yes, there's fire, but it's still seven miles from where I live or 10 miles or three miles or whatever it is. When the, when the air is filled with smoke was really, really hard to, um, to reconcile. And we have to remember these stories of folks who were out there fighting these fires were also losing their own homes. We had county employees responsible for helping get the word out who also were in imminent danger. Um, so it's a very um, stressful, dynamic situation. The simple answer is we absolutely have to better resource our disaster preparedness. We have, um, you know, we, we have one person overseeing a department that has to plan for earthquake, wildfires, pandemic, 
tsunami, other disruptions to supply chain, um, communicable disease, we've had meningitis outbreaks. Um, these things will keep happening and we don't have the resources to do the tabletop exercises for each scenario often enough for it to be fresh and responsive and, and ready. We're just, we're just hamstringing the folks whose job it is um, to do better. Thank you. Joel? So the wildfires are, are something that's some, that really, for me, have been just devastating. Um, as someone who's been doing environmental justice work for many, many years, um, and particularly when it comes to forestry issues, both in terms of herbicide spraying, but also my role um, as president of the Northwest Forest Worker Center. It's an organization that advocates and fights for uh, forestry workers, both those who do the replanting, thinning, and also uh, wildfire fighting. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the things I'm most proud of is I was able to bring uh, people who are, are wildfire fighters, um, but also tree planters and thinners to go speak to the Senate uh, Workforce Committee on their experiences fighting wildfires, dealing with um, uh, forestry issues and replanting and thinning. And so when I think about the response to the wildfires, I don't just think about sort of the response in terms of our own government here as a county, but also um, really as a state and, as, and also up and down the West Coast, right? Because we, we had wildfires up and down the West Coast that just devastated um, our, our ecosystem. Um, and I, I think for a lot of us, both those of us who are EJ advocates, longtime climate justice act activists, we didn't think we were going to see this for another couple of years. To be honest with you, I thought we had another five, maybe 10 years until we, we saw the catastrophic wildfires that we saw this summer. And as a matter of fact, I thought we were, we were going to be okay. Just the week before, I was at a friend's cabin out in the Mackenzie River. Um, but we've been taught a couple things, one of which is that we need a much better plan to, to deal with this, um, not just at the county level, but also at the state level. Um, most recently, I had a chance to go speak to the Oregon Board of Forestry uh, my role as chair of the, of the Governor's Environmental Justice Task Force about the Oregon Draft Habit Conservation Plan um, for the for west of the Cascades, and you know one of the things that we constantly talk about in, in environmental justice is who has access to information, you know who, and unfortunately, um, you know people who are people with disabilities, people with limited access to internet, people with limited access to cell phone service. Um, those folks um, were in, in grave danger. And we think when we talk about East, East Lane County, we're talking about areas in which unless you have Verizon um, or some really good you know, phone plans, you're not, you don't have cell phone service out there. Um, and if you're a farm worker working um, on, a, on a farm and that was harvest season, um, one, you may not get information. And two, you may not be even, even be able to take the time to not work in really dangerous conditions. So there's a, a myriad of things that happen. Wildfires are happening. People are losing their homes. People with disabilities or with, um, you know, who are, or frontline communities who already live next to pollution sources are having really awful um, experiences and reactions and having to go to the emergency room. So there's just, there's all this stuff happening. And so we, we really need to take a serious, serious look at our disaster planning and, and working in close coordination at all levels of government. Very good, thank you very much. Yes, Laurie. So the, the response to wildfire is while the wildfire is happening, but what we have to now look at is, um, you know, what, what comes next, how to prevent um, the next one 
or at least mitigate the potential um, damage, right? Response is a short-term um, piece. Recovery is the long-term, is the long game. And it'll really depend on Lane County leadership to, to have the recovery be one that lays the groundwork to mitigate against um, greater damage next time, right? So we need to make it as easy. The commissioners have been talking about this. I've been watching some pretty hotly contested conversations on the commission about um, making it easier for people to get reimbursed as soon as possible and to rebuild. Um, if we do the rebuilding poorly, people who lost their homes will be tied up in red tape for a long time, lose opportunities. Um, if we do it well, our neighbors upstream will be able to build back um, safely, stronger, better. Um, we need to adopt policies that encourage residents in fire-prone areas of the county to build with fire-resistant materials, um, support residents in creating defensible fire-safe space around their homes, um, and use, use materials that should there be another fire where they have rebuilt um, their home is more likely to, to survive or at least um, experience less damage. So again, it's another one of those get upstream, get out in front of it, make the investment early to prevent um, the devastation, the crisis, um, and the expense later on. Joel, you have two minutes to respond if you'd like to add anything. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Uh, you know, I just wanted to, to quickly talk about, you know, some of, some of, uh, of what's going to happen here in the future. And, and also talk about some of the surrounding communities. So the one of the worst areas that was devastated by these wildfires was the Almeida community down in Phoenix, Oregon. Um, and, you know, also want to talk about the, the, the devastation that these wildfires have had, not just on people here in Lane County, but, you know, in, in other communities across the state and across the West Coast. And um, my father and mother have a lot of family in, in Phoenix, and um, I grew up going to some of these trailer parks um, in which moms and uncles and um, you know cousins live in the same trailer park units and um, they were completely devastated my, my grandpa's uncle or grandpa's excuse me brother lost his his trailer um, my dad's cousins um, lost their trailers and so but when we think about those housing sites when we think about the people who lost their homes in East Lane County it's not enough just to say well here's a check you know uh, and we'll tell about your good luck you know, um, how are we ensuring that those people are going to be able to come back to their homes? Because that is their homes. And what we're talking about here is displacement. We're talking about here is the fact that we have climate refugees in Oregon and in Lane County. And I did not in my lifetime think that was going to happen. Um, but I want to talk about something really exciting, which is the Wildfire Defense Act. It was introduced by Kamala Harris and, um, you know, Congressman Jeff Merkley and other up great West Coast uh, congressional leaders. Um, that's going to invest a, a billion dollars for a variety of community resiliency measures. Um, there's some great stuff in there, um, and, and some of that money will trickle down to here to Lane County. Um, we, we need to push hard for it. You know, we need to continue to improve evacuations and access for first responders. We need to address vulnerable populations, including the elderly, people with disabilities, um, the, home, the homeless. We need to you know, continue to harden uh, critical infrastructure for homes. Um, we need defensible space. We need to create buffers between communities and forests. Um, and we just need to build local capacity to implement and oversee the plan. This is unprecedented stuff, and we need technical assistance from our state um, or forestry and also from our, con our congressional delegation. Thank you very much. Ellen, your question? Yeah, so um, in the wake of historic protests and civil unrest uh, following the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, racial justice and policing have 
found a renewed focus in community discussions here in Eugene and around the country. Um, what should the county be doing to make sure the justice system works for everyone? Um, and what specific policies or reforms would you support? Um, and I believe Joel, yeah. you start this one. Can you drop it in the chat box real quick? Thank you. This is a big one. Um, and it's something that's been a long time coming. Uh, for years and years, people have been saying that, uh, that if you are a, a, a black indigenous or person of color, you move through the world in a different, different way. And that's, that's certainly true here in the state of Oregon, specifically for black folks. Um, Oregon was founded as a black exclusionary state when the United States of America and its states were having conversations about whether or not to have slavery, the Oregon decided, you know what, we don't have, we don't want black people in our state at all. And it, and it went so as so far as to make it into policy. So in 1850, Oregon had a, a color tax. If you were black, you had to pay $5 a year to, to be here. Um, and you could also be uh, forced into um, indentured servitude. And so we see the beginnings of our criminal justice system, the beginnings of uh, Oregon's prison system happen because of uh, a black indigenous and people of color existing in the state of Oregon. Uh, and that, that has followed us, us through today. Um, just up the street from my house is Skinner's Butte and people used to burn uh, a cross up there so that any black person that made it into, into town at the Amtrak station um, knew who who ran this community. Um, there's pictures somewhere floating of the KKK symbol on Skinner's Butte. There's pictures of tens of thousands of KKK members marching up and down Willamette Street. In the 1920s, Oregon had the largest concentration of KKK members in the West Coast. So we have a deep history of white supremacy and white nationalism. Um, several of our governors uh, uh, former mayors, um, congressional leaders, state representatives all have ties to white supremacy. And, and the KKK was an active political group with real influence. We need to right now come to terms with our deeply racist history. And we need to ensure that this, that we are not continuing to perpetuate this problem. So what that means for us is reinvesting some of the money that we put into the sheriff's office into a new community-based um, community health and safety model um, that is going to have really real input from community-based organizations and from the people who've lived in this community for a long time, um, who've had direct impacts, not just with, with, um, with police, but also with white supremacy. Um, you know, we're, not, we're also talking about regular everyday folks <clears throat> going around with guns armed vigilantes on our streets, spray painting things. Um, and Lane County's first step is to make really clear our values, what we stand and what we don't stand for. An elected official's job is, is to shine a light in the moment of darkness and say, this is not what we're about. What we're about is everyone being treated with dignity and respect, um, no matter what. Thank you, Lori, three minutes. Yeah. It's just reflecting and, and looking at the question. There's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, but without a doubt, the first thing I will say is white supremacy must be dismantled um, systematically in our institutions uh, and in our hearts. 
um, local governments in particular are obligated to act to protect marginalized communities. Um, and this work begins with recognizing our, our role in the systems and structures that uphold white supremacy. Um, and it's accomplished through actually reorganizing priorities and reallocating resources. Um, there are, you know, when you ask, I'm just check the, 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 the particular question, you say, what, um, what should, could the county be doing to ensure the justice system works for everyone and specific policies or reforms? Well, um, you know, the justice system really doesn't work for much of anyone, frankly, as someone, um, you know, one example, I'm, I'm a former foster mom and I've seen up close what our child welfare system looks like and does. Um, and, you know, heartbroken about what happened happening at the border with detention um, camps and children being separated from their parents. We all know um, children separated from parents um, causes causes pain. And um, the children who are separated from their parents disproportionately are children of color, whether that's at our southern border or in our, in our child welfare system. Um, when it comes to law enforcement and policing, um, absolutely black, black and brown bodies are targeted. Um, I'm particularly and extra concerned um, about how this conversation needs to extend and talk about the unique needs of, of women of color, um, particularly women who are caught in a terrible double bind if they're experiencing, for example, intimate partner violence, and they're faced with this choice of calling police on a partner because that partner is doing them harm, but understanding that that could cause the partner to um, be on the receiving end of harm from that police officer. I mean, it's just clearly and in every way, shape and form, um, a system that is not serving the needs of people in our community. Um, I, I was um, really appreciative of Joel's comments at the Human Rights Commission um, press conference today, release of the hate and bias report, um, really troubled um, by, by what uh, was being shared there. I will share, I don't share this often, I'm the daughter of an immigrant of a Jewish mother who came here from Germany by way of England, um, fleeing Nazis. She lived for three years in England, um, was sent away from her family in Germany to England and then immigrated here to the US as a young girl. Um, and so when I heard in that report today about the um, increased in incidence of anti-Semitic um, vandalism in our community, it's all of a piece um and um these systems have got to be dismantled the resources have got to be reallocated and i will just come back to again it starts with what is the ultimate goal um what are we trying to do and then work our, our way back there anti-racist work has to be holistic it has to be attended to our labor to our environment our families our communities um i'm not um just being rhetorical when I say Black Lives Matter and I do not take my personal role and responsibility in being part of ending white supremacy lightly. I will always call out racism and racist policies when I see them and I will be persistent and consistent in requiring that we address it at every opportunity. Okay, thank you. Next question, oh, Joel. Yeah, I just wanted to, I guess, get into a little more specifics. Um, because the, the question asks, you know, a few things. One is like, we've got the civil unrest going on and, and, it's, and it, it's about the brutalization of black bodies. Um, but it's also, there's also some other interest, intricacies that are involved over the summer. 
you know, one is the weaponization of, of whiteness against uh, people of color. You know, there was, um, um, you know, whether it be people trying to go on a job and being killed in cold blood um, or, you know, and just today, you know, when the hate and bias report um, incidents, the consistently over years, you know, what I've seen in, in these reports and also um, just in talking with, with the city is that the majority of people who experience violent hate crimes in our city are black people. And so it's important for elected officials to organize and to ask for proactive statements. And right now we're 13 days away from one of the most historic election cycles of the generation. Lucky for us here in Oregon, we don't have polling sites. We get to just vote by mail. However, there is talk in other counties across the state of armed vigilantes posting nearby ballot boxes. I myself have had conversations with the, or the Democratic Party of Oregon about their plans and how they, they can stop um, voter intimidation and violence. We need clarity uh, around the process of reporting voter intimidation and incidents of violence. Um, we, need, we need local government leaders to band together and make very clear that the voter intimidation will not stand. Um, and we need to agree with each other that we're gonna denounce this behavior and other anti-democratic behavior. When I talk about anti-democratic behavior, I'm talking about the armed vigilantes that have been stockpiling guns for years. Just recently, the FBI put out a report that the most dangerous uh, threat to Americans currently is white supremacists um, stocking up guns. And there's also, a, we need a real response to political violence. Because the fact of the matter is, regardless of who wins this election, the presidential election here in a few, in a few weeks, there will be violence. There will be an uptick in hate and bias crimes. And we need to make sure, we need to make sure that we draw the line. We need to make sure that, that our own law enforcement folks are not um, are not going in to cause more harm. We need to prioritize de-escalation. We need to prioritize safety. Uh, we need to prioritize uh, democracy. Uh, and the fact that if the Department of Homeland Security is saying that white supremacy is a threat, um, a very real physical threat, we need to take it seriously. Very good, thank you. Laura, you have two minutes if you'd like to add to anything Joel has said. Um, I think I'll, I'll wait. I mean, the, the, the question of policies that we can be doing to dismantle white supremacy and um, help um, reduce disparities and make up for historical inequities is, is a sort of slightly different conversation than the way this question was posed. So I think I'll, I'll let this one sit. Very good. Thank you. Okay, uh, Celine, your question? Yeah, let me just grab that so I can put it in the chat. Um, Oops, that didn't go through, did it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it did. Okay. Um, so South Eugene has historically struggled to balance the need for additional affordable housing with concerns over maintaining the character of low-density residential neighborhoods. Um, how will you support the construction of additional affordable housing, and how will you get buy-in from your constituents on this plan? And I think we start with Lori on this one. Great. Thanks. Um, yeah, so I was listening and getting all excited and then now I look at it again. Yes, maintaining character. So 
Eugene, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia, which is a very old city. Eugene is not an old city. Um, Eugene is, is, all cities are continually developing and changing and, and evolving. There's not a neighborhood in Eugene, in Lane County, but we'll talk about in this district in South Eugene. There's not a neighborhood that looks today the way it looked 50 years ago. And so there may very well not be a neighborhood that looks 50 years from now the way it looks today. Um, whatever, whatever that means. I think we always like to think we are unique in whatever moment in time we're in, when it, particularly when it comes to issues around um, the development of cities and, and what our landscapes look like. Um, but they feel more consequential or unique to us just because we're in the midst of them, not because of any real objective reason that they are. We have a housing crisis. We have a crisis of too many people who are unhoused. We have a crisis of too many people who are delaying medical care because they can't afford to, to pay for medical care and make rent on the wages that they earn. Um, housing is just such a pivotal human right and issue um, economically for so many people. So we clearly have to do something different. Um, when you say about buy-in from the neighbors, you know, housing is no different than any other issue in that we don't have uh, consensus. You get a different answer depending who you ask. And um, so getting, I, I buy-in, uh, it depends on who you ask. I could easily get buy-in for any given thing if I very was very selective in who I gave the opportunity to weigh in um, on the issue. So I think one of the most important things, I go back to that, that statement I made before about being rigorous on ideas and gentle on people. Um, the rigor, the idea that deserves the rigor of our study is what are the models in other parts of the country or in other parts of the world um, that show us uh, well-developed, thoughtful infill, bikeable, walkable communities where people's basic needs can be met within um, a certain walkable distance of their home, grocery, pharmacies, post office, um, social and cultural uh, centers, and so on. And to bring those models and ideas forward, to um, create them where there's the path of least resistance to create the demonstration and model right here in our own backyard, and then show folks, look, see, this is what it looks like. Um, and folks who are, are resistant, um, shouldn't necessarily always get the final say. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's just gonna have to be some moment, I mean, not everybody's gonna be happy. That's true no matter what policy or issue we're talking about. And so I think, again, it's just about looking at historically and traditionally who has had access to decision makers, whose voice has been um, invited in. Everyone has a voice, not everyone gets the microphone. So who we've been handing that microphone off to who gets to be loud. Um, let's change that up a little bit and um, and learn from from other successes. Very good, thank you, Joel. Three minutes. Yeah, no, I really appreciate this question. Um, you know, so when we talk about District Three, South Eugene, we're talking about um, just for the people who are listening on camera. Um, it's funny. I've talked to some voters, and they say that we're not in South Eugene, and uh, <laughs> the the district as it's defined is pretty much like Austin Stadium where all the student housing is out back. It extends all the way out to Spencer's Butte. Um, so you cross the Fray Street Bridge, you go all the way down um, to, to Spencer's Butte, and then it goes from um, Chambers just past City View, 
uh, you know, near near West 11th when, when things really change from a residential to sort of a more uh, a business um, sector. And it goes all the way up to the Spring Boulevard right before you drop down to LCC. So we're talking about um, an area of which, that, which is the, the oldest part of Eugene. So we take a look at the way the city of Eugene was built, um, the way it was developed, the way it was invested in. Um, South Eugene was, was first. Um, the University of Oregon, some of, some of our historic neighborhoods um, in, the, in the more center part of, of, our, of this district are, are houses that were built um, after World War II, some of them, um, some of them closer to campus even before that. Uh, and then a lot of, as we go up into the hills, you know, there's some newer developments and older developments. But if you go past, um, you know, the Willamette River towards East, what I would consider East Eugene, a lot of that's new stuff. And so there is this, there is this perception, right, of, of like you mentioned, maintaining character of, of, of neighborhoods. But really, it's important that we recognize that this is 2020, that, that it's time that we need mixed um, income affordable housing. You know, it's, it's when my parents first moved to this community, um, they moved to the Jefferson neighborhood and the Whitaker neighborhood because it was an affordable place to live. Um, and that's quickly not becoming so. Um, as, as I've grown up in the Jefferson and Whitaker neighborhoods, the rent has increased significantly. Um, and I see a lot of, you know, not in my backyard attitudes, but I also see folks that say, you know what, it's time for us to, to invest in, into and make them affordable mixed income neighborhoods. It's a time for us to increase transit access, to reduce our carbon footprint, um, and, and also to you know, really use and preserve um, our environment. The thing about this, this part of Eugene is that we have the most green infrastructure than any other part of Eugene. I actually did an analysis when I worked at Beyond Toxics on the amount of green infrastructure. And what I found was that this part of town has uh, a ton of it. We've got, we've got a ton of trees. It's a great place to live. It's, near the bike path, it's near the UFO, it's near the river. It's a really great place to live. And, and I've been very lucky to live at the base of Skinner's Butte for many, many years because my parents bought a home here, um, you know, when, when they were in the late nineties and, you know, after they purchased another home, I, I rent from my parents. And so, um, you know, it's important for the county to recognize that, that we need to continue to make sure that South Eugene is a place where everyone has a chance to, to live here, not, not just some people. Um, and, and for me, you know, I really like to, to ensure that, that folks remember that part of what makes us great is, is our diversity. Um, and that's also not just in, in face value, but also um, at our income, our income levels. Very good, thank you. <clears throat> you know, we did have a lot, we lost some time in the beginning, we made that up. And I know that there are other time considerations for the candidates. Uh, so that being said, we're going to uh, transition to closing comments. So if you're not speaking, let's uh, be on mute so the candidates don't have any background disruptions. And Lori, we will begin with you and your, for your seven minutes. Great. Thanks again, Mark, so much for this opportunity and Celine and Ellen for the great questions and to Joel for making time for the conversation. People in Lane County are impacted directly every day by the decisions made by our county commissioners decisions about our health care, our housing, providing real support to people who are unhoused, ensuring parks, roads, and bridges are safe and well-maintained, spurring sound economic development to create opportunities that lift up all in our community. 
We need forward-thinking land use planning and public safety focused on prevention, not punishment. When decisions are made about such fundamental matters, who is sitting at the table matters. As our local housing authority and our Board of Health, the Lane County Board of Commissioners has the ability to do or not do very real things that change people's lives, our lives, our children's lives, and their children after that. I believe that our commission currently lacks a much needed perspective and expertise on public health, a key charge of the board. Public health and health equity is a lens that we can look through to identify problems and solutions, to see how families are forced to struggle or set up to thrive, how they're left behind or given a fair shot. And seeing through this public health lens can help us get to the root causes of problems and identify lasting solutions. I have spent the last 40 years of my life working to support and improve the lives of those around me, and yet too many of our neighbors continue to struggle. In my time in Eugene, we've seen housing prices almost triple. Schools have become unbearably overcrowded and underfunded. White supremacists openly organizing right here in our streets, in our town. Reproductive rights threatened as never before, and an environmental crisis spiraling out of control. We can and we must do more. This moment calls for transformative, steady, experienced leadership. We need change, real change at every level, and that change takes bravery to walk beside the vulnerable and never be turned back by fear. It means being committed to innovation, to showing up, and to taking courageous, decisive action to deliver on our promises. As one of the top 10 largest employers in Lane County, our local government has an obligation to be a model workplace, a workplace with an eye toward the future, a workplace where pay is equitable, family caregiving responsibilities are accommodated without risking job security or advancement or devastating a family's finances, a workplace with robust healthcare benefits and supports or subsidies for childcare being the standard. Additionally, as your commissioner, I'll take a hard look at services that we currently outsource, particularly in our jail, because in these times where public safety systems and criminal justice are under scrutiny, I do not believe privatizing prisons is in the best interest of anyone but the bosses and shareholders of those contracting companies. We cannot continue to balance budgets on the backs of workers. And speaking of budgets, nearly 18% of the county's budget goes to health and human services. I wanna see greater investment in prevention and treatment programs to reduce the number of people suffering from untreated mental health crises and addiction, to improve health outcomes and lower the rates of chronic disease, especially for mothers and children and communities of color. People are ready for bold leadership and I have never been afraid to be bold, to ask hard questions. I know what is required to win and I'm doing that work to get there. In my opening comments, I talked about some of the work that I've done to make our communities stronger and more just. Being part of so many progressive initiatives and campaigns has taught me what the job of a commissioner takes. It takes vision, it takes a strong plan, it takes focus and teamwork, and it takes understanding and listening to community. The activist and changemaker, Reverend Jen Bailey, founder of the People's Supper Project, which uses shared meals to build trust and connection among people of different identities and perspectives, she says, relationships move at the speed of trust, but social change moves at the speed of relationships. And I believe her. 
I'm honored to have won and come out on top in the May primary with the support of more than 200 community leaders and elected officials, 14 labor unions, alongside pro-choice groups, advocates for meeting the needs of our unhoused neighbors, climate activists, groups working to bring more affordable housing to Lane County and more. These endorsements represent relationships that I have built over time, solving problems, getting things done. We're in the midst of great social change, much needed and long overdue. To make lasting change, positive change, will require we nurture our relationships. Throughout the duration of my campaign, I have run as I will serve, with care, with energy, adaptability, and integrity. I've been campaigning on a platform of public health equity for Lane County before COVID-19, and many of these platform planks have since become everyday parts of our lives. More accessible public meetings, attention to racism and gendered economic inequality as major public health crises, and the highlighted importance of our mutual responsibility for one another. I'm running because I'm ready to bring my lived experience to this role as a mother, a grandmother, a former foster parent, a waitress, receptionist at the food bank, an activist fighting for better working conditions for women and better futures for families of every kind. I'm running to leverage all that I've learned in my 30 plus years here in this community to walk beside each of you to make our community stronger, safer, healthier, and more just. I know voters are wrestling with their decision in this race. I've received calls and texts and emails, and I'm guessing that Joel has too. It's a sign of great progress when we have a candidate field that looks the way we ultimately want to see our governing bodies look. Racially and ethnically diverse, diversity of age, gender expression, and sexual orientation, and folks from different socioeconomic backgrounds. May we be faced with these challenges more often moving ahead. So how to decide? Well, I think it comes down to who is ready, whose experience relates directly to the role of a county commissioner who has demonstrated that they're prepared and ready to take on these issues. I invite viewers to please visit my website to learn more about me, my work in the community, the issues I want to work on, and to see a full list of who is standing with me. And most importantly, I hope you'll do what you can to keep yourselves and the people you care about connected, safe, and healthy while we ride out this storm together. I'd be honored to earn your vote to represent you on the Board of Lane County Commissioners. And finally, I wanna thank Mark again and everyone who helped organize and participate in this forum. I'm excited to work with our community to move us into the future with a focus on equity, resiliency, health, and safety for people and for our planet. Thank you. Thank you, Joe, your closing statement, sir. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, thank you, Mark. Thanks to Aline, uh, Ellen and Celine for uh, being with us this afternoon. I know y'all got a ton of work to do um, <laughs> as we try and get closer to the solution cycle. And thanks for Lori for um, writing this, this, this strange year <laughs> alongside me. Um, as I reflect on on this journey that I've been on uh, to try and represent the, the community that, and the place that I call home. You know, I've been thinking a lot about sort of my, my life um, and, and my time here in Eugene. You know, as I mentioned to, to voters earlier, I was, I was born and raised here. And um, in many ways, I've been able to experience Eugene in the Northwest in ways that 
uh, a lot of other people haven't been able to or, or don't. And at the same time, my experience is an experience that is um, becoming more and more common in this state and in this country. Um, as a child of immigrants, you, know, you, you have to go day by day and navigate things largely on your own. You know, I remember in fifth grade, I was talking to um, some folks about music and they were talking about the Beatles and I was like, who are the Beatles? And uh, I, got, <laughs> I got laughed out of the room. And it's been experiences like that of having to learn things on your own, of having to navigate this, this strange system, this strange world in which your parents don't understand. You know, when I, when I was applying for college, you know, I was applying for FAFSA, my, my, my parents didn't know how to help me. I had to help myself and I had to rely on people in my community who were the helpers, who were the people who were supporting people like me. And I wouldn't be here without them. Um, I wouldn't be here without the support of those who dared to invest in me. And I want to talk about some of those investments right now, just to show you how I've been able to come to become the person who I am today. Um, when I was in high school, I got invited to participate um, in what was called the Minority, Minority Student Achievement Network. I was 15 years old and I got sent to uh, Michigan to have a conversation with students across the country about why students of color and white students don't perform at, at an equal level. And what I learned there um, was that I did have the, the voice and I did have a responsibility to speak up when I saw things were wrong. And so when I came back from this trip, I didn't stop there. You know, I continued to push my teachers, push my community, ask the question of why not? Why can't we have a seat at the table? Why can't we be represented in government? Why can't we achieve as well as our, as our counterparts? And I brought that, that spirit in my time at the University of Oregon. You know, whether it be protesting uh, in Arizona against um, the show me your papers laws when I was in college to, um, you know, pushing back against um, the local sheriff for his interacting with Immigration and Customs Enforcement to talking to rural, rural Oregon foresters and uh, loggers about, you know, them having to shield themselves in trucks because aerial herbicide sprays were going overhead. Um, so more recently, my conversations, you know, and, and my keen awareness about the situation that we're in. You know, when COVID hit, people got relief checks, but over um, 100,000 people in the state of Oregon were left without, um, without anything. And I thought to myself, what can I do as a community member, as someone who cares deeply about his state and cares deeply about his community, what can I do to make it better? And one of the first things I did was um, through my coalition One Oregon, I convened uh, the organizations that served um, immigrants without legal status from Southern Oregon to the coast, to Eastern Oregon, uh, to Central Oregon, all across the state, we convened together and I asked them one simple question, how is your community doing? And they all said the same thing, or, fate, or we don't know how to pay for rent. We don't know how we'll pay for food. We don't know how to access the internet. We don't know how to use laptops. We don't know how to use iPads. We don't know how to make it so that our kids are able to continue their education. And so out of that was born the Oregon Worker Relief Fund. And the Oregon Worker Relief Fund to date has distributed $22 million in assistance to thousands and thousands of immigrant families across the state. 
And the only reason why that work happened was because there are those of us who, who dare to ask the question, why not us? And when I think about this race for county commission, and when I think about this just in general, the, the time we're in politically, we'll, what we're looking at is change. And that change is coming and that change is inevitable. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we ready for it? How are we gonna grow from it? You know, people often talk about going back to the way things were, but that's just simply not gonna happen. Um, I do believe we have a responsibility to look out for each other. And it's also my belief that our elected officials should be held to a higher standard. One of us, honesty and mutual respect. And now more than ever, um, the perspective and experience in regards to racial justice issues, inequities, and the needs of the next generation that's coming behind me is vital to the growth of our community. What brings us together right now is, is our resilience. You know, what brings us together is our belief that tomorrow will bring a better day. And I can't tell you what tomorrow will bring, but I can tell you that I will protect the place we call home with the same drive that was instilled in me um, from a young age. Uh, we need someone who will unite, not divide our community. We need someone who will have a seat at the table because if you don't have a seat at the table, you're what's for dinner. And if you take a look at who's an elected official in the state of Oregon right now, less than 2% look like me. Less than 2% are my age. It's time that we get a chance at the steering wheel. It's time that young people and BIPOC folks get a chance to lead our community forward. So I ask you to vote for me, Jolie Ball for Lane County Commissioner. Um, and I ask that you visit my website for more information at joelieboa.com. It's joelieboa.com. Um, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, we've had the distinct pleasure and honor of hosting tonight's candidate forum for County Commissioner District 3 South Eugene with candidates Lori Traeger and Joel Iboa. Uh, thank you both very much for your time availing yourself to the questions so the voters can hear and see you uh, at depth. Uh, Ellen McKee and Celine Swenson, thank you so much for your participation, your thoughtful questions as moderators. Uh, to all the viewers, thank you for your patience and understanding with the, the technical difficulties we experienced early on. Uh, to both of the candidates, we wish you both the very best and we look forward to the will of the voters on November 3rd. And with that said, everyone have a very good night.